And if you remember, I told you at the beginning that uh, what we were going to do in chapter 2 was, um, at least for that week, we were going to uh, kind of take a broad overview. I didn't want you to miss the, uh, the whole of what the chapter had to say. I didn't want you to miss uh, the forest for the trees, if you will. And I, I uh, alluded to, or I uh, drew the comparison to playing a guitar. Sometimes, sometimes you strum through a song. And you just you get the you get the overall melody, and there are other times, other songs where you need, really need to to pick at each individual note. And last time we looked at chapter two, and I really wanted you to just see the melody. Now uh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pick up a couple notes because there's a there's a piece, there's a principle in chapter two that is part of his whole thought, part of his whole argument that I didn't want to lose altogether. But now I want to go back and I want to talk a little bit a little bit more specifically about it. And it's this idea of older men, older women, to younger men and younger women, reaching up, reaching back, reaching down, locking arms, in a word, discipleship. Discipleship. Uh, If you want a more contemporary word, you could call it mentoring or training up. A guy named Howard Hendricks is uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, what I would call a stud of the faith. He uh, also a longtime circuit preacher on the Promise Keepers circuit. He uh, well known for his Promise Keepers messages. Howard Hendricks is sort of a legend uh, around Dallas Fort Worth. He is just uh, this this little old guy, bald, white hair, but he's just just a fireball. Southwestern Seminary. I would go over and I'd visit a buddy. In uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, we were at opposite schools. And every chance I got that he was in a a Howard Hendricks class that I could skip out and go sit in this guy's class as a guest, I would do it. And Howard Hendricks uh, had one of the best ways that I've ever heard of describing the importance of discipleship in the church. And he he, uh, compared it or likened it to the power sweep for the 1960s Green Bay Packers. And if you're not a football fan, let me just give you a, a quick, quick little summary here. In the 1960s, uh, the Green Bay Packers were a dynasty of sorts. They uh, won more than they lost. Under a guy named Vince Lombardi, who became um, uh, a legend in his own time, he, uh, he, he really brought together this one play, and it was called the Power Sweep. And with Bart Starr at quarterback, some of you who are older may remember this, with Bart Starr quarterback throughout the 60s, they just perfected this one play. And basically what they did was uh, they just outmatched and out x and O'd the other team. And they'd pull two guards and they'd swing them out there and they'd get a lead back and they'd take out the end and then the guards would swing around and they'd, they'd just outmanned people. And theoretically, you could not stop the power sweep. If it was run correctly... It was, for the Green Bay Packers, it was their bread and butter. It was their staple play. We call it their, their go-to play. If all else fails, run the of the chalk from Vince Lombardi as he explained anew and afresh with, with all the vigor of the very first time how they were going to run the power sweep and how no one could stop it. And they based their whole 60s career on the power sweep. Howard Hendricks said, for the church, discipleship, is much like the power sweep. It has to be our staple. It has to be our bread and butter. In Titus chapter 2, we read it last week, there's a section. And it is a section that alludes to this, this transferring 
of wisdom, this transferring of godliness from one generation to another, from older to younger. It's really not just there in chapter 2. It's sort of an underlying theme of the whole book. If you look at the introduction that Paul makes, he tells you what he's all about. He says, I'm a slave to God. I'm a mouthpiece, an apostle of the message of Christ. He said, I'm here so that they might have the full knowledge of truth that will lead them or bring them in accord to what? Godliness. And so, as a summary, Paul would say, my, my life is wrapped up in serving God and serving His people, bringing them into a likeness. He was a mentor. He was a disciple maker. That was Paul's business here on earth, was making and maturing disciples. He goes on in chapter 1 to say, in order for you, Titus, who, by the way, was one of Paul's disciples, Paul grabbed guys like Timothy and Titus and he brought them under his wing and he said, hey, let me pour everything that I have from Christ into you. Now you take it. And he sent Titus to the island of Crete and said, Titus, you get some more guys. You raise up leaders. Call them and you let them get some guys. And you just see this whole discipleship cycle turn over and over and over. It starts with Christ to the apostles and to the disciples. And it goes from them, it goes to these next guys and the next generation and the next generation. Discipleship in the church is always meant to be this great passing of the torch. We're not to be lone rangers in the church. We're built to work best together. And so in chapter 2, Paul, in, in this stream of thought on going from uh, Titus getting these men to lead and to pass on to them the, the sound orthodox doctrine so that they could be the guardians of the church. Then he turns to the church in chapter 2 we saw last time that he says, now we in the church, we've got to do our part. And he talks to older men, he talks to older women, he says, you have a role here, you have a duty here. And then he talks to the younger men and the younger women, he says, you have a duty here. Some of you to reach down and help pull guys up. Some of you to reach up and find a hand to lift you up. We have a responsibility to each other. That's, that's the process. That's the process. And in the midst of that, he deals with this topic of discipleship. Howard Hendricks went on um, to explain how some churches go awry in not accomplishing this task. It's been said that uh, discipleship... These days is uh, almost extinct in the local church. And he had some insight as to why. I want to share it with you. Put up that charismatic guys, some guys who are attractive in their speech, who are attractive to draw a crowd, who are outgoing type A personality guys. And we get those kind of leaders that can fire up a group and we put them in charge. And he says, then we have them organize and we have them build programs and we have them bring things together and structure the church. And he said, in the end, the third part is that we get those leaders, we let them organize, and he says, and they determine a goal or what will be success for the church. And he went on to say, guys, this is really backwards. He said it should be absolutely the other way around. Now go to the next slide, Rusty. He said we should start with number three. The first thing the church should consider is what is success? What are we here to accomplish? What is our goal? What is our target? What is our aim? And then work backwards, step back from there and say, now, if this is our goal, if this is our target, if this is our aim, how then do we get there? It's what we would call our philosophy of educating. Our philosophy to educate people to the goal. If the disciples are our goal, how do we get 
men and women there? How do we make those disciples? How do we mature those disciples? He said, and the last part of that should be, now go find leaders who can do that. See the difference? Uh, can I tell you that although Cornerstone's been meeting for just a couple years, um, the, uh, this started for Cornerstone over ten years ago with a couple guys just sitting in a college dorm room rethinking what the goal and the aim of the church should be. Just a couple college guys sitting around a dorm, going around visiting churches, trying to find good, solid Bible teaching. Should we be doing here in our churches? And rethinking what success is. What is success? What will we step back one day and say, you know what? We're accomplishing something. And so Cornerstone started with this thought uh, for me back in college and a group of other guys saying, what is the church really supposed to be doing here? And then the next question was, okay, now how do we, how do we get there? Once we found the biblical answer to what is success, what is the real target, what is the real aim or goal, now let's now talk about how we get there. This continued through college with guys like Preston and some other guys in seminary. More guys just sitting around saying, what is this thing supposed to look like? What is the aim biblically supposed to be? Can I tell you what the aim for many churches is? It's um, what they call the killer bees. Buildings, budgets, and bodies. And uh, this, is a, this is an indictment on my profession, if you will, that most guys who do what I do work their way up the rungs of the ladder of church work succeeding in those areas, unfortunately. Success, as we look around and compare churches, is usually based on how many people you got, bodies. You got any new buildings? You have a building at all? And how's your, how's your giving doing? You bringing in a lot of money? And there's something in us that kind of knows where we can go on to find leaders who can do what we've said needs to be done. We, we've got to get this thing correct of what is our goal, what is our aim. Let me just briefly tell you what our goal and aim is here at Cornerstone. You know our purpose Many of you, as uh, being said, that we are here to follow the Lord, number one, feed the sheep, number two, and free the world. I hope, you've, I hope you've gotten that. I hope it's been hammered into you. That's really the abbreviated version. Can I give you the whole thing? The whole thing is that we as a church, we are organized. Our goal, success for us as an organization, is that we make and mature disciples who follow the Lord, feed the sheep, and free the world. That we make and mature disciples. That's the, that's the great commission. Go ye therefore in all the world making disciples, teaching them. All right? That's making and maturing disciples. That we not, only, we not only lead people to Christ, but we grow them up in Christ. And then to further define that, we said that maybe that's not enough. How else should we unfold this purpose? How else should we package our purpose so it's easy for people to understand, but so that it communicates a little more fully because we need to know the next logical question is, what does a mature Christian disciple look like? And so he said, he looks like three things. He looks like a guy who's growing in three ways, or if you please, three relationships. Number one, he's growing in his relationship with God. We say that, that we are following God. Number two, he's growing in his relationship with believers, that he's feeding other sheep. He's being fed by other sheep. He's being accountable to other sheep. He's growing with God. He's growing in the midst of other believers. And he's growing in this relationship to the outside world, that he's doing a part in pushing back the darkness with the light, that he's being, they're probably better words, 
Okay? Uh, I, I may, uh, I'll not argue with you a bit that to say following the Lord does not, doesn't even touch on our relationship and the expanse of what our relationship should be in growing with Christ. Okay? That we would talk about our, our continuing relationship with God. That we would talk about our consistency in our relationship with God. That we could talk about our nearness, our closeness in our relationship with God. We, can, we could talk about a whole lot of things that we put under that one umbrella of follow the Lord. All right. So that doesn't totally do it either. But that's how we say it. So we here at Cornerstone, we've set that. That's our aim. Now let me say this. Our aim and our goal, success for us, is not something we've determined for ourselves. We don't believe that that is the goal for Cornerstone specifically. We believe that's the goal biblically for the church of Jesus Christ. We believe that that's the goal of a New Testament believer as an individual and the goal as a New Testament church, that we should be about those things, organized to make disciples, mature them up, so they become followers, feeders, and freers. Okay? Now, that said, we back up from there and we decide now, okay, how do we get there? What is our philosophy of education? How are we going to get there? And that's where I want to spend the majority of our time today. We get there with a very simplistic approach. We don't think it has to be complicated. And let me tell you a little bit about how we organize educationally because we're very intense. Can I tell you, I don't want you here your whole week. Here's our educational strategy that we're going to get you here. On Sunday mornings, we come together and we primarily want to do two things. We want to show God how much he is loved by us and we want to sit at his feet and learn about him. We want to love on him and we want to learn from him. Okay? That's our goal as we come together. Now, my goal on Sunday morning, I can accomplish only so much. What I can accomplish from here is casting vision. I can steer the ship overall, but I cannot work in the details of your life. What you get here on Sunday morning is 99% of the time lecture. There's not a whole lot of dialogue. There's not a whole lot of interaction. I can cast vision. I can steer the ship. I can give you the broad doctrines. I can help correct thinking. I can help teach the word. But we have to go somewhere more than that. That's one of the reasons I don't get you back here on Sunday night and let you just sit there and listen to me again. That's one of the reasons I don't ask you back here on Wednesday night so that you can sit there and listen to me again. Instead, I say, find a night, find a time, go and get in a smaller group. And we we do this thing like a funnel. We take you out of this big group where you just sit and you listen, and it's big bird, mom bird feeding baby bird kind of stuff. You're getting broad spectrum. We're casting the vision. You're getting the direction of the congregation. And then we take you and we say, find something smaller. For us, it's life groups. And we say, get in a life group, in a group of people who you can be accountable with, you can conversate with, who you can be uh, cared for by, who you can invest in each other's lives. Get in a smaller group of people and let them sharpen you and you sharpen them. We take what we do here on Sunday morning. So if you went to a life group this next week, you're going to be talking about this conversation. You're going to be talking about this message. You get in a life group with a group of your peers and you chew on this so that you don't hear this, walk out of here today, and go about your business on Monday morning. So we have, what I'm trying to say here is we have this this organizational strategy that is designed to meet our aim and our goal so that when we as leaders sit back and say, how are we going to reach our goal? How are we going to make and mature disciples? How are we going to grow these men and women up? How are we going to make them better followers, feeders, and freers? We say, okay, we can, we can lecture, but that's not good enough. 
And the only thing we get out of more lecture is more messages that perhaps don't get applied. It does me no good to, to lecture you more and more and more if we don't get it from the beginning. Does that make sense? And so we change our strategy. We say, okay, now take that and get in a smaller group and you chew on it, you discuss it, you sharpen each other in it. You disciple each other. Older guys, older ladies, younger guys, younger ladies, we put groups together and we let you work it out. Groups of six, groups of ten, groups of twelve, I don't care. However it needs to be done, it needs to be done smaller. The next step from there is, if you need more than that, if you have this longing and desire for more than that, then you find a guy, you find an older guy, and let me say this, it may not be a guy who's older in years, unfortunately. Ideally, in other letters, that some of you are still drinking milk when you should be on to meat, when you should be on to heartier things of the word. But some of you, you're still, in essence, you're still babes in the faith. And if Paul were to look around the church in his day, he saw grown men wearing diapers spiritually. That's the picture he's trying to paint. Ideally, we should have older men and older women looking around the church, looking for younger women and younger men that they can help raise up. Now, this is where Titus 2 comes into play. And this is why I think Titus 2 is so important because Titus 2 is lacking in our churches overall. For two main reasons, I believe. Number one, because there are a lack of the older men or women. And again, I don't mean necessarily just in years. I mean in spiritual years, in spiritual wisdom. There is a lack of men and women who are able, for one, and willing, number two, to reach down, find someone who needs that hand up, and see how they can, in love, in the truth, bring them to godliness. Amen? That's lacking. I'm a testimony of this. I got saved when I was in high school. I was a junior in high school. And I pestered the fire out of my pastor. I drove him nuts. Because I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I had so many questions. I bugged this guy to death. Uh, I went to church because my best friend was dating the pastor's daughter. And so I had this free pass uh, to his house through his daughter and my best friend that I'd go over there and hang out with them. But most of the time, after I got saved, I wasn't there because I wanted to hang out with them. I see a balance uh, that we're saved by faith through grace or by grace through faith? How do you balance that? How do you balance that Christ was all God and all man? What's up with that? How does the Old Testament and the New Testament, how do those merge? I mean, does one conflict? How do we know that these New Testament books belong? How do we know that the book that Thomas wrote doesn't belong? All these questions, and I just, I just hammer him. I'd make him take me on visitation. I'd make him take me to the hospital visits. Uh, when we did that sort of thing, I'd make him, uh, I'd make him take me anywhere he went. And I remember the day that I said, you know, uh, I'm interested. How do, you, how do you decide how you're going to teach? And how do you teach the Bible when you teach, etc.? And, and there in his living room at his house, uh, on that white leather couch, on that glass table with coquina underneath it. I'll never forget. You can do that kind of thing in Florida. Have a white leather couch and coquina coffee table. But he, he pushed the conch shell off the table and he grabbed my Bible and he put it down. And he opened it up to Psalm 1. And he said, okay, let me show you. Here's what I do, and here's how you take the Scripture. Here's how you break it down. You take this verse and you read it. And he just, he just went right down through Psalm 1 with me. And I'll never forget that. And then he said, here's how you look at it from, from way back. And now here's how you get in closer. 
And then you break it up and you look at the details. And he said, here's now, now you apply it to your life and you start to implement it. That you don't walk with these type of men. You don't stand with these type of men. You don't sit with this crowd if you know song history. Because this guy was willing and I was ambitious enough to bug him until he did it. It takes both. One of our problems is we don't have older men and older women who are willing to do stuff like that. Who are willing to say, I'll take that guy who may not know, who may not have the knowledge or the information that I have at this point in my life, even though I don't have it all. I'll take him and I'll take him the next step. And we don't have enough younger men and women. And this, I think, is becoming more increasing of a problem. We don't have enough younger men and women who have the ambition or the desire to find someone to raise them up. Can I tell you that after I got out of high school and I had that guy who, um, who invested in me, by the way, I drove him so crazy, he hadn't gone to seminary yet. He quit before I left and went to seminary and went and got his doctorate because I think he just realized uh, he needed some more answers. And um, that was an encouragement to me. I got to college and I majored in theology and in biblical languages, and um, I had some awesome professors. Can I tell you, my whole college career, I would beg these guys, hey, can you spend a little extra time with me? Can you, can you meet with me? Can I take you to coffee? Can I meet you for breakfast? For years and years and years, finally one guy, the guy that ended up marrying Kimberly and I, he gave me one summer, and I stuck around in Williamsburg, Kentucky. If you've ever been through Williamsburg, Kentucky, on I-75, it's the first exit when you hit Kentucky. Once you blinked, it's gone. There's nothing else there. And when college isn't in session, there's nothing in this town. All right? I stayed in this town. I worked at a restaurant, some questions, and he gave me what he got. And I, it, was, it was wonderful. It lasted about two months. And that was it. And he, he didn't have any more time. When I got to seminary, the same thing. I would go to professors who, after a while, I'd start to realize this guy, he's got it together. He knows his stuff. I just, wanna, I just want more. I just want, will you meet with me on, you know, can I ask questions? Uh, over and over and over, I'd go to these guys, and for one reason or another, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And I started to think, I started to look around and say, what in the world is going on here? And the frustration mounted. Here's a guy who's hungry and willing and has a desire, but there's nobody there to give him a hand up. We have this, we have this, this void in our churches. It's a Titus 2 void. We need the guys who've been poured into, who've been sitting here soaking up for a generation information to not let their sponge be stagnant, but to wring that thing out on somebody else. I've said before that we can't be uh, Dead Sea Christians. If you've not heard me say that, what it means is the Dead Sea is all, uh, all, the, all the flow of the Dead Sea comes into the Dead Sea and then it's just a big lake. Nothing goes out of the Dead Sea. Partially why they call it the Dead Sea. It gets all, this, all these nutrients that come in, but there's no, there's no exit for it. There's no way for it to pass on. And so it all just comes in there and it, and it, just, it just stagnates. And nothing in me to pass along. Don't worry. Uh, we'll get somebody who's dumber than you. How about that? And I quote the guy that I said that to. He looked at me and said, don't worry, we'll find someone dumber than you. We've got to have both. 
There's an absence of both. There's an absence of those men and women who have the knowledge and the willingness to reach down and pull someone up. And there's an absence of younger men and women who are willing to listen. A few years back, um, I, finally found, I finally found a few different guys who would pour into me. And um, they made me swear an allegiance um, that I would not let it end with me, that I, would, that I would find guys myself, that if they ever ran into me and they said, where are your men, that I'd better have guys that I'm pouring this stuff back into. And so I, I ended up finding a couple guys to do that. But there was just this long time of frustration but can I tell you, it, it took me stepping out of my comfort zone. It took, uh, it took Kimberly and I literally quitting our jobs, moving to another state to say, we're willing to do this if somebody's willing to invest it in us. Okay? And I don't say that to, to brag on us. I say that because that's how rare the men who are willing to invest are that we had to go to that extreme. I was in a church of about 1,200 people. And it should have been that I could have found a man in that church who could have poured into me, but I couldn't. Either they didn't have the information and stayed and said, well, woe is me, there's nobody. Or you've got to have the willingness and the ambition to go out and find it. We need both. We need both. Now let me tell you how you do it. And this is... This is all kind of an overview here. We'll get into it more, more deeply at another time. Here's how you do it. If you were to ask anyone in the military how you raise people up, if you were to ask anyone in business how you train the next guy, here's how they tell you to do it. This is, this is the boot camp version. This is the uh, Salesman 101 training course. Here's how it works. I get a guy, and he watches me. I get him. I do it. He watches I do it, then he helps. He does it, I help him. He does it, I watch him. And then he does it on his own. And then, once he's doing it, we get him a guy that can watch him. We get him a guy who can help him. We get him a guy he can help. You follow me? It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. There are just a few components missing here. And Howard Hendricks said about this power sweep of the church. He said there's all kinds of reasons this thing breaks down. If those guards don't just pull at the right time, if the other linemen don't block down and close those gaps, then people are going to bust in and they're going to break it up. If the lead running back misses the defensive end, it's dead in the water. If the I don't have anything to pour in, find it. Find it. We've got opportunities for you here on Sunday morning. We've got opportunities here for you throughout the week. Find a life group. Get in there. Let people sharpen you. If that's not enough for you, from time to time, we have electives. On Sunday night, we just finished up a training on evangelism. You don't know how to share the gospel? Get in here. Eight weeks, we gave you basic training on how to share the gospel. You know how many people showed up? About this many. You know how many people ended up? About this many. You need more than that? We'll find you a guy. Let it never be said at Cornerstone Church that the man who's hungry will go away from this place lacking. We intentionally structure this place so that you can get what you need. 
We're not going to fill your week with lectures. We're going to make you get out there and do it yourself. We're going to make you get out there and get in relationships. We're going to make you get out there and prove yourself. You know what I want to see in guys? You know what I pray for in our church? And I pray this specifically for the men because I have this this burning in me for the men in our church. I think they're crucial. Specifically, I, I pray to see this fire in the eyes of our men, this hunger in the eyes of our men, that they would say, I want more than where I am right now with Christ. I've got to have more. Daryl, I don't know how to get there. Can you help me? Can I tell you that anyone here on this staff wouldn't be here? If they don't, they won't be here. They'll do whatever. I had a guy come to me and said, Daryl, uh, just recently, he said, I, I need to know more. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't feel like I know enough of my Bible. and I'm, I'm just hungry and I'm reading on my own. Would you meet with me? I'll, I'll meet with you anytime. When you need to meet? Four o'clock in the morning, we'll meet at four o'clock in the morning. What I'm looking for is that fire in the eyes. That holy ambition, that hunger to be more than you are right now. I make no bones about the fact that I, I will not and I cannot, and you can't expect or you, you, you should not expect your pastor to spend his time on those who do not have that ambition. I'm looking for the guys who give me just a little bit and I'll, I'll do whatever I can do for you. All these guys will. You've got to take that step. If you're an older guy and you don't have the info, we'll get you the info. If you need something that you can pass on to the next guy, come tell us and we'll get you something. We'll take you through a Bible study. We'll take you through six weeks of something. And then you can take that six weeks through another guy. There have been books out on these shelves here, not for decoration, since we started. There have been books out on these shelves from your pastoral staff. There's a little sign that says these are staff-recommended readings. These are books that have helped inform myself or Preston or Rusty or in the future one of our elders that are out there for one of those reasons. And we've said, grab one of these. If we can give you anything to take with you, we offer you one of these. Preston put a little journal out there for people to sign in and take the deals. We're still on the first page. We're not even halfway through the first page. Uh, I think we've had to replace two books out there. There's a void. It's a Titus 2 void. We've got no power sweep in our churches as a whole. Now let me end this, because I'm over, with a word of encouragement um, for this church specifically. I've been talking about the church as a whole. Uh, I'm very much encouraged in what I hear. I'm hearing good things. I'm hearing good things. I'm hearing about life groups that are pouring into each other. I'm hearing about relationships that are building in life groups that, um, that are transforming homes. I'm hearing about men who are pouring into other men who need help with their marriages. I'm hearing about women who are pouring into younger women who are young in their faith, who are young in managing their household. I'm hearing about whole life groups who are investing in families and in their financial needs just on their own accord. I'm hearing from elders about guys they're visiting because I can't visit them or Preston can't visit them. I'm hearing from elders about um, the way their children are growing and how they have this new vigor to invest in their children. 
I'm hearing good stuff. And I would say as a whole, we are, we are above average on this Titus 2 thing, okay? S for us, if we want to be successful at making and maturing disciples who follow the Lord, feed the sheep, and free the world, we have to be about this business. And just like Paul to Titus, I would say to you, it doesn't stop at raising up men in the leadership capacity of elders. I would turn to you as the church and say, what about you, older man, older woman? Are you doing your part? What about you, younger man, younger woman? Are you doing your part? How are you doing right there? Let me close with this. I can't say it better than a guy named Bishop Ryle on this fire that we look for in men and women. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He sees only one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health, whether he has sickness, whether he has rich, whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought of as wise or whether he is thought of as foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. Let it never be said that they don't find cornerstone as a sphere for that kind of zeal. Let's pray.